When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Kreppi, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Of course, that is where you can find uh, all my work and all the work of uh, all the folks at uh, the Oregonian and Oregon Live and as it pertains to uh, Ducks coverage in particular. And uh, obviously Bill Oram was in the game, was in Berkeley for the game uh, at Cal, which we'll be going over here uh, today on this week's edition of the podcast. And also set you up for uh, this week's matchup at Colorado as well. Not going to be a particularly lengthy review or preview for that matter. Uh, we will chat with Brian Howell of the Boulder Daily Camera. Want that conversation to really be um, the the focal point of uh, this week's edition of the podcast because, uh, again, you know credit <laughs> credit where it's due and, and kind of where where the conversation needs to be. Colorado is obviously a program in transition. We're not going to make a whole lot about the game necessarily in the matchup because I think the outcome is kind of a foregone conclusion here with a nearly five touchdown point spread. But point being that there are some fascinating things worth paying attention to for Colorado in terms of long game. And, and you know, when you're making a hiring, a hire of a new head coach, not that long removed from obviously the last head coach and that tenure and even the, and even the very short tenure of, of Mel Tucker before that. So, um, it's a program that's obviously uh, seen better days, but we'll get into more uh, on Colorado with Brian Howell, like I say, with the Boulder Daily Camera coming up. But first comes first, and that is uh, Oregon's 42-24 win over Cal, a game where you know they win by three scores and can absolutely, uh, not just can, did walk away feeling as though they could have, would have, should have done a whole heck of a lot more. Uh, scored a lot more points, that they left points on the field, and they did. And there's no way around it. And yet, you score 42 points, they throw for 412 yards, Bo Nix. And, and the three touchdowns, two interceptions, the one interception, I'm sorry, is it, totally irrelevant. Final play of the half, at the, three touchdowns, one interception of consequence, uh, 412 yards, 586 yards of total offense is the most Cal has ever allowed under Justin Wilcox. One of the in six years at Cal, and one of the highest totals he's ever had against him in any capacity, on a, in a college head, you know head coach, defense coordinator, you name it. So even on a game where Oregon scores forty two and feels like it could have scored sixty three, if not more, it still had and produced a incredible volume of yards, of points, of first downs, of you name it particularly through the air uh, and through the air and doing so by leaning on the running backs and the tight ends. 
And that's to me where as much of the credit uh, and, and praise for the offense goes, obviously to Bo Nix, because it usually ends up with the quarterback regardless. Uh, Noel Whittington had a terrific day. Uh, I thought arguably not just his biggest play, but one of the biggest plays of the entire game was his 29 yard touchdown catch. Not just because of what it did to the score and how that effect, like absolutely unequivocally sealed the game at that point, but just the manner in which, you know, he catches the ball over the middle and just goes straight down the middle with a head full of steam and barrels into the end zone and, and tumbles in and takes the hits on the way. That was as kind of a, a, as good an exclamation point in a game that was not going to be competitive in the first place uh, to really cap off a authoritative and decisive uh, and commanding win uh, at that point as you're going to get. And yeah, it came with a slower start. Yes, it did. Yeah, and some of that slower start was on the opening drive. I had a little bit of credit to Cal. After that, it was just Oregon stubbing its toe over and over and over again. You know, a the times that they got stopped inside the red zone, you had a incomplete pass on fourth down inside the red zone where, frankly, Knicks has to set his feet. Uh, there was a little bit of pressure, but he could have avoided it and ultimately still set his feet and connected on the throw. The throw was there to be had. And, and I highly doubt he would tell you otherwise. Uh, another where the interception off of Troy Franklin's hands, ball's got to get caught. You got to call it what it is. It's in his hands, goes off his hands. It's going to happen every so often, and just because it's in traffic means that it goes off his hands into a defender. All right. Not, you know, suboptimal, to say the least. Uh, and on that one in particular, there was also, I mean, yes, he, Troy is sitting in his zone, so he's, you know, the route is correct. There's nothing incorrect or wrong about it. It's just that when you see how open the middle of the field was, that's one that, you know, if you had your druthers, you would hope that, you know, for a quarterback and a receiver who have been so much on the same page, so great at recognizing preemptively and ahead of time uh, what coverage may look like or what something may, you know, open themselves up to for some big plays. That's not one where they needed a long play. They just needed to convert and, you know, maybe even score a relatively short touchdown. And like I say, the pass was there. It just unfortunately goes off Troy's hands. But when you saw how open the middle of the field was, you know, it just kind of further underscores, like not only was the route that was there, there, there's a whole lot of room for that and more. Uh, so those being two of them, a third being the stop on fourth down on the, the run by Jordan James, where the right side of the line had opened up pretty nicely. Unfortunately, get stopped, you know, over the middle a little bit. So, for a really successful fourth down offense to take a couple of losses on fourth down, as Dan Lanning said after the game, they probably needed that, probably needed to be humbled a little bit um, and see how they respond to that. And yet we're still talking about a team who put up 42 points and 586 yards of offense and had its number two receiver go down about 10 minutes into the game, less about six minutes into the game. And then, ever so briefly before halftime, have Franklin go down with what looked like a cramp and then come back, yes, in the second half, but nevertheless. And had Seven McGee not travel, and now he's not with the program anymore. So you were down a whole bunch of weapons, and yet you still had over 400 yards passing, and running backs produce quite effectively. You know, four yards carry is going to, you know, going to win you some games. Not the greatest day Oregon's ever had on the ground, but 174 is still awfully good. And again, the 412 through the air, when early on the passing game was not as crisp as it normally is. 
And they still hit a couple of deep throws. And yes, they still had some others where they had mishaps. Yes, they did. Whether it be the misconnections that I already referenced or the drop ball, that is absolutely a walk-in surefire touchdown that Chris Hudson had go off his hands. Yeah. Now, are you going to be able to get away with all those errors against a better team? No. And that's why the Ducks were upset and annoyed with themselves after the game. Because, as they say, the standard's the standard, and when you don't reach it and you don't achieve what you know full well you are capable of achieving and doing, and it's not because anybody prevented you from doing it other than yourself, yeah, you're going to be annoyed and frustrated, naturally. And when it's against inferior competition rather than better competition, it only makes it worse. But grand scheme of things, do they win? Yeah. Do they cover for those who have you know vested interest in that? Yes. So from all those standpoints, I think a whole lot of points of success um, and, and things to feel awfully good and optimistic about, certainly. And frankly, in a weird, in a weird kind of silver lining way of looking at it, and I'm far from <laughs> it's far from my usual MO, uh, to say the least, but you know, not to be a sunshine pumper about it, but Quite honestly, I think they're, I mean, we'll see on Saturday. Look, they still have to play Colorado, and we'll, we'll get to that game here in a second. Uh, I think there's actually something to be said for it might be better in the long run for Oregon to have had a couple of struggles and a couple of miscues and misfires in this game with Cal than if they did go out there and score 63 or 70 points. Why? Because if they had, if they were literally unstopped, unchallenged inside the red zone, if they had had such a commanding lead that they could have put in the twos for the entire fourth quarter and maybe in into the third, and that they played well, no less, then what are we talking about heading into Colorado? Then we're talking about. Oregon was this unstoppable juggernaut, could do no wrong. No matter where they turned, everything was clicking on all cylinders. They are this unstoppable force right now against clearly inferior competition. And now they're going into a game against the most easily overlooked team in dead last place in virtually every single statistic, including in the one that matters most, which is win-loss, has already fired their head coach whose quarterback is having a historically bad season in terms of completion percentage and other quarterback metrics, who, you know, look, you got to call what it is. The Colorado roster has been ravaged this offseason. They do not have a lot of talent on that team. If Oregon was going into that game coming off of a 63- or 70-point performance and a win by 40-some-odd points, not to say that they could, they would look past and therefore be susceptible for an upset at Colorado. It would take far more than that. But that going into that kind of a game, it would be easy to become lackadaisical. When you have a game where you feel like you could have done so many things better and did nothing but beat yourself in some instances that really mattered, I think that helps better, could, could, help better focus a team into a game where focus might otherwise be a challenge. And you still have to remember with this team, 
top 10 in the rankings, reeled off seven straight wins, dominant looking offense with all this production. Still got to remember that outside of the offensive line and quarterback on offense and a couple of spots along the defensive line, this is not a veteran team. It's veteran at certain positions. It is not a veteran team. This is still a younger roster. So if they were coming off of just absolutely beating the brakes off a cow to the point of what could we possibly nitpick or point out as areas to improve, then I think heading into a game like Colorado where there is literally nothing that can be said to point out anywhere that this game should be competitive. We're still talking about young people and, and you know, they're people. They're going to look at the challenge. You want them to respect the challenge at the same level? Stop. I mean, you got to be fair. You know, not to say that you want them to, oh, you're going to accept them to go goof off, but you got to be realistic. Well, like I say, in a weird silver lining sort of way, I do think having a game where, by way of performance, there's plenty of areas that can be pointed at and say, you know, we could do that a whole heck of a lot better, and that's entirely on us. Well, that's something you can say inside the program to go do. Again, you know, whether they do or not, we'll see on Saturday, but it doesn't mean one thing to me one way or the other, but I do think that that is something internally that could help uh, in that perspective. Now, having said all that to set us up for uh, this Colorado game, I say I'm not going to get into some long-winded uh, preview here, and again, we'll chat with Brian Howell of the Bullet Daily Camera to get into the preview more, more than uh, – I can do it justice. But the bottom line is, is this game is n- absolutely should not be competitive. So I'm not going to sell it as though it should be or it will be. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. Oregon is the vastly superior and better team from pillar to post, from every position, up and down the roster. Colorado's roster wasn't good in the first place. It got ravaged in the offseason, lost over 20 guys to the portal, six of them starters. Christian Gonzalez being one of them, it has done an absolute number on that team. Having said that, they still managed to beat Cal. They could end up having a 1-11 season, but at least they got the one. And their non-conference schedule, which was not going to be easy no matter what, I think is going to stand the test of time is actually, bizarrely enough, one of the tougher non-conference schedules <laughs> in the entire conference. But what are you going to do? They have to improve everywhere. We get all that. And we'll chat with Brian about that, about, you know, where do they look for a head coach? What do they need to do? All those sorts of things. But for the here and now for this weekend, Oregon defining success in a game where they're favored by four scores and nearly five touchdowns. And by the time we get to Saturday, it might very well be five touchdowns on the road, no less in a place where they haven't been in quite a while. I don't think anybody on the team, on the active roster, has actually been there other than Christian Gonzalez, who played there. There may be one or two others, but very few. They're going to win, and they're going to win handily. But it's how do you define success in upholding the standard and achieving um, statistical successes in certain areas that they need to show it? You know? When the passing game is going to be out there and they're going to be lobbing the ball with the starters, how do they connect and what does that look like? Particularly if Chase Code is unable to go this weekend, if he's unable to go this weekend. 
what does that look like? How do you foster depth at the receiver position where it wasn't the deepest group in the first place and it got thinner after this past weekend and it may be thinner this next weekend. So what does that look like defensively? Whether it be third down, which was actually pretty good this past week, or overall run defense being better, pass defense, particularly in a couple of deep throws. You know, they didn't get beat all over the place against Cal, but there were a couple of deep throws, including against Gonzalez. So are there a couple of instances where Colorado's probably going to lob a couple of deep throws? They're going to have to. All right, well, how do you go about defending them? Your bet, your Oregon's corners are better than Colorado's receivers. There's no case to be made to the contrary. Well, got to go out and prove it every play. They do those things and put forth a absolutely 60-minute shellacking. And now that we're getting into playoff committee ranking time, where style points and strength of schedule and every which one of these metrics and game control and all that stuff matters, yeah. If you're a Ducks fan, you want this to be as lopsided and ugly as possible. You want this to be a, a 63 or 70 point offensive output with no more than 21 points allowed on defense. That's your dream scenario if you're an Oregon fan for Saturday. Combined with obviously everybody being healthy and, and you know that way the Ducks are, are in a optimal position from a roster standpoint, entering their final three games against, you know, what is going to be and should be three really good games, uh, you know, as November continues. But again, we'll talk about those in the weeks ahead. For now, we will chat with Brian Howell of the Boulder Daily Camera, get his perspective on the Buffaloes, and uh, obviously, again, a program very much amidst uh, great upheaval and transition and change. But having said that, a still proud program, that does have fan support uh, and fans who frankly deserve better than what they've been seeing on the field for a while, but probably not going to be changing on Saturday for them. Uh, and we'll probably have a pretty good uh, showing of Oregon fans in the crowd as well, but we'll chat with Brian Howell, get his perspective on Colorado and for this week, as well as for the big picture of where the buffs may be headed next. And we welcome to this week's edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast, the Colorado beat reporter for the Boulder Daily Camera, Brian Howell, who you can follow on Twitter at BrianHowell33. Uh, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for uh, for fitting us in, uh, as always. Uh, well, Brian, uh, we certainly, uh, many many of the people know at this point, many of the fan, even the casual fan knows that Colorado is uh, having a rough year. Got off to a brutal start. The schedule was not going to be easy from the jump and obviously made a coaching change with Carl Durrell uh, in the big picture sense uh, at this point, now under interim coach Mike Sanford and uh, how this team has been performing. I realize coming off a loss to Arizona State, but we're not necessarily judging and assessing success and failure strictly by the win-loss column with this team and this program right now um, in the big picture where do things stand? Understanding again, we're not. Neither one of us is going to make this out to be that Oregon Colorado is supposed to be a competitive game. Right. That's understood. But where does the Colorado program find itself entering this game, knowing that it's the last place team going up against the first place team, and they are not supposed to be in a competitive game? Yeah, you know, it's a situation where, you know, 
as we all know, Arizona State's not having a great season either. Uh, they fired their head coach. Uh, they had a quarterback competition a week ago because things were so bad the week earlier at Stanford, yet still came into Boulder as 14-point favorite. And, uh, you know, CU was actually yeah, – obviously they're disappointed they, they lost the game and they could have won it with some different things going on in the game. But, I mean, they're pleased in some regard in that they, they put up a season high in points and they were competitive in the fourth quarter and rallied and all that stuff. And so they're at the point that they actually don't feel too bad about a home loss against, uh, you know, one of the other worst teams in the, in the Pac-12 South. So uh, that's where they are at this point that um, there's some – there were – I mean, it's amazing. I I don't think I've ever written about more moral victories after a loss than I did on Saturday night. I was going to say, I mean, watch a little bit of the post game uh, with Sanford. It really, I mean, I, I don't even need to watch ASU. Um, well, again, also as an interim head coach, but mainly since Oregon's not playing ASU, I, I just don't care. Um, I don't have to because you know, what does it make a difference? But I mean, the tone and tenor of the post game with Colorado, like I say, after a loss where they gave up 42 points and allowed an Arizona State team with an interim coach with a uh, a quarterback competition that week to throw for the most yards that it had thrown for in like four or five years <laughs> and to still walk out and and like you would have thought they won the game. I mean, the tone and tenor of that post game was just like, I went, oh my goodness, like that's really you know where things find themselves. But I mean, at the same time, if you want to be a Debbie Downer every day because of the state of affairs, you know, you're going to be pretty miserable for three solid months. Um, so I understand that too. And I'll put it this way. I mean, and Mike Sanford made this point to us. Uh, he talks to us on Sunday nights and he made this point and he's right in that it's now three games since he took over. And in two of the three, they actually had a legitimate shot to win the game and they won one of them. And the five games before he took over, there was no shot. I mean, there was uh, the TCU game to start things off. Actually, ironically, TCU, who's now, you know, one of the better teams in the country, yeah. that was probably their best shot to win in the first five weeks. I mean, that was a, uh, you know, go back and look. That was a competitive football game until late, late in the third quarter, and TCU, uh, you know, took a, you know, ran away at that point. But um, two of the last three weeks, the Buffs could have won, and you know, I wouldn't say should have, but they could have won on Saturday night to go two and one under Sanford. Obviously, they're one and two, but uh, that I guess that's where things stand is that you know they're they're playing better football and you know there's there's this excitement and uh, uh there's the words joy and fun and all that stuff have been uh, big words uh, under Stanford and uh, it sounds kind of like orange slices things like that but uh you know th- that's what he's done is he's brought some excitement back to the program even though they're not winning and again credit to the Colorado fan base who has shown up nicely still i mean you know there there are fan bases out there who have teams worth cheering for who don't show up you know, this is a team and a program who obviously, you know, this is going to bottom out by way of the season. There's no way around it. And their, their November stretch is absolutely brutal. Uh, starting with Oregon on Saturday, then, you know, at USC, at Washington, and playing Utah at the end. Um, needless to say, Colorado's going to be a dog and a big dog in all four of those games. So this could very well be a 1-11 season. And they're still showing up. They got 40,000 people there this past weekend. I'm sure there'll be a significant crowd on Saturday for Oregon. There were 50,000 people in a listed attendance for the Cal game. And of course they win that one. I mean, this is a fan base. You know, this is, these are people who are proud and they want to support a winning program and they know they're not going to be doing it right now, but they're still supporting it. And what did that Cal win? And all right, yes, this one, you know, this past one was close, even though they gave up a whole bunch of passing yards and stuff. But the fact that they are in a different space, that if Carl, if this was the same result, but Carl Durrell was the coach, there would still be this dark cloud hanging over in terms of what the future is. It's understood that the future is going to be changing, but what has the coaching changed midseason 
actually meant to changing a bit of the temperament and mood around things at the moment. Yeah, I, I mean, it really kind of goes back to what I was saying about fun and you know joy and all that stuff. And um, Mike Sanford has mentioned several times they've, they've tried to build this culture of joy, and um, it, it does sound kind of hokey, you know. But but that's what they've done, and uh, there was none of that under Carl Durrell. And I like Carl, but you know it just wasn't there. I mean, he he's not an outgoing person. People didn't get to know him, even on his own staff, and even within the athletic department, people didn't really know him that well. So uh, Mike Sanford is the complete opposite of that and has gone out of his way so i think what it's done is the fan base knows that mike sanford's not gonna be the head coach here i mean he was gonna have to probably go four and three in these seven games something like that to have a shot uh, he's one and two and he's not gonna win the next four so uh there's no, you can't hire a guy that goes one and six down the stretch so he's not gonna be the guy but i think what it's done is it's brought some excitement back and to where the fans know this is changing so let's at least go out here these these last couple of months or six weeks, whatever it is, and at least cheer on the guys and uh and watch some football. So and you're right, people will be here for Oregon because they always show up for Oregon. Uh, the last home game is Utah, and uh, I mean it's a neighboring state. There's a ton of Utah fans around here. Uh, they're going to show up for that game as well. There might be a lot of green and a lot of red in the stands those two days, but there's still going to be a lot of people here, and that creates a good atmosphere. For fans who are uh, going to be getting their first dose of Colorado uh, from this Ducks fan base in particular, Brian, um, give folks an idea at the quarterback position where I realize Colorado's kind of gone back and forth, but it, it sounds like uh, from from listening to press conferences and, and reading your work that uh, this is JT Shroud's show um, for the time being and uh, you know that McNown could – could end up redshirting, and I think that's kind of part of the plan at this point. So in that case, it's going to be Shroud on Saturday. And statistically speaking, he is having a absolutely brutal year, um, even if this past weekend was not as dreadful other than the completion percentage. Uh, what should Oregon fans expect uh, from a JT Shroud uh, passing game, particularly if Fontenot is back in the backfield when he wasn't this past weekend? Yeah, you know, it probably will be Shrout. Um, Sanford has not said whether um, uh, Owen McCown is going to redshirt. Um, it sounds like he will. I mean, there's, he said there's a lot of conversations going on, and and frankly, there's no reason to play him the rest of the way. I mean, he's been banged up. Uh, the, there was no plans to play him at the start of the season anyway because they thought they could ride with Brendan Lewis and JT Shrout. Owen McCown's about 170 pounds, and uh, he's six foot two, listed generously at six foot two. Um, he's not that tall, but uh, 170 pounds. He looks like he's in high school, and uh, he's the better quarterback. But you know, he he took a pounding and uh, uh, came out of that Cal game, and JT Stroud finished the game. And at this point, he's played four games. He could sit out the rest of the year in red shirt, and with no bowl game possibility at this point, there's literally no reason for for him to play. Uh, other than just go out and get beat up by <laughs> you know four of the best teams in the conference, I don't think that's going to happen. So with JT Stroud, yes, the the completion percentage is absolutely brutal, and uh, it's around forty three percent, which uh, is, I mean that <laughs> under under fifty five these days in college football is is not a very good percentage. Now, this is on pace to be. I'm a stats guy, James, so bear with yeah, me. It's, but. Histor it's historically bad. I mean, yeah, there's no it, way, there's no sugarcoating this. It no. would be historically bad. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 I'll tell you, it's on pace to be uh, CU's worst completion percentage by anybody that's shown 50 passes or more since Sal and Nessie in 1988. And they were an option team back then. So that was a uh, an option quarterback that threw 41%. You, that's fine for an option quarterback, right? 
Um, so especially back in those days. So it's, it's on pace to be the worst since then. Uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. And his percentage actually went down the other day, going 13 for 34. But when you're asking what to expect, the thing is, you know, Mike Sanford mentioned it uh, to us the other day. He said, yes, the percentage was bad. But you look at those 13 that he completed, and there's some wild throws in there. And that's that's the type of thing that we saw in a limited amount of practices that we could see over the last couple of years. As we see that arm, we'd say, wow, that kid can make some NFL throws. And he can, but he's just not accurate all the time. And, and he will make those throws. Uh, get him on the run, and that's when he's at his best. And he, he runs quickly. Uh, he gets out of the pocket quickly. Uh, but he had some throws the other day. You watch and say, wow, that, that guy can throw the ball. But then he has some throws you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and that that's just kind of where they're at right now is that there's no consistency. And I mean, Colorado hasn't had a 300 yard passer since Steven Montez graduated um, after the 2019 season and uh, hasn't even really been close. So um, I, I can't imagine that the passing game is going to be a super big threat on Saturday against Oregon. Tell us a little bit from uh, the couple of receivers to pay attention to though, because it's understood that with Fontenot and, and, and fans understand that if Fontenot's back, then okay, then they're going to lean there. And even if he's not, that they're still going to lean lean on Smith then in the running game. So, you know, you do that as long as you can. And if you get down, then all right, you're stuck passing. What are you going to do? Um, but this is a receiving core that, I mean, you just got to be honest, uh, outside of Colorado fans, I don't think very many fans in this conference really remember anybody. Maybe, R- maybe RJ Sneed, maybe, but, some of it because of youth, some of it because of transfer, some of it just because of just the way things have shaken out. Um, this is this is not the most you know household name receiving core. Um, so whether it's Jordan Tyson or uh, Daniel Arias, um, who should fans be at least mindful of um, in terms of you know who who will be drawing Christian Gonzalez's attention uh, in his reuniting with his former team. Yeah, you know, it's going to be Jordan Tyson. And, you know, Christian, I don't know if he knows Jordan because Jordan's a true freshman, but um, that kid, not a household name yet, but, I mean, uh, this week was named uh, the Pac-12 Special Teams and Freshman of the Week, um, CU's first two awards of the season. Uh, and <laughs> they're both the same uh, same kid. But um, had a phenomenal game the other day, other day. That kid's going to be a star. And if it's going to be at Colorado, we're going to find out, I guess, this this winter. But uh, um, that kid's really good. And we started hearing his name in the summer before our preseason camp even started. And he wasn't, you know, one of the highest recruited guys in this class. It was kind of like, really? That kid's turning heads? And so uh, then you get into fall camp. It's like, oh, they keep saying his name. And uh, it's taken a little while, but now he's he's taken over as that number one guy. And, um, you know, Daniel Arias uh, leads them in catches, but – um, he's had so many drop issues that they actually benched him on Saturday. He didn't play on offense. He sp- he played strictly special teams. He had started every game up to that point, was leading them in receiving, and didn't play. I don't believe he played a single offensive snap. And so I'm not sure if he will play on offense or not. But uh, it's really Jordan Tyson, Montana Lamonius Craig, um, who's made some great plays. He had the winning catch against uh, Cal. And then uh, R.J. Sneed uh, is a guy that, you know, from Baylor that has dealt with a foot injury most of the season, but is starting uh, to get back a little bit. And his numbers aren't great, but, you know, he's a guy that, you know, could, you know, make some plays. So I think it's those three guys. On the other side of the ball, Brian, uh, only main guy I'll, I'll ask you about is uh, Josh Chandler Samito, uh, the inside linebacker who's just really all over the field uh, and, and racking up tackles for Colorado. And I mean, somebody has to. And he's not the only one with with tackles, but he's got 66. And the main numbers that jump out are the 10.5 for loss. Uh, 
um, with a couple of sacks and, you know, he's providing the production. And this is a transfer from West Virginia uh, who comes in as a grad transfer. And I realized like in years past, we would talk about Nate Landman um, and whether he was hurt or not. And, and just the sheer, you know, tackle machine that he was. So someone in this defense is going to have a whole bunch of tackles. Um, one, how and why has, has Josh Chandler Samito been this productive, particularly in a, a TFL standpoint? And two, to his story, um, what did he say even before the season got going in terms of truly why he chose Colorado? Because he only had one year to go, and this was not exactly a state secret that this was not going to be a very good season for them no matter what happened. So I'm sure there were other suitors. This is a guy who played at West Virginia and had like 110 tackles a year ago. So this wasn't this isn't a guy who's just oh well he's buried on the bench and he's going off somewhere just to play and play to, you know to the maximum. He was already playing a pretty big role. So uh, how has he been able to rack up 10 and a half tackles for loss at Colorado and why did he choose Colorado uh, in the first place? Yeah, not only a big role, he was West Virginia's leading tackler last year, and uh, I don't know exactly w- what honors they were, but he had. He received Pac or all not Pac twelve all Big Twelve honors uh, at, at different points in his career. So yes, this was a very good linebacker. And um, you know when I when I've asked him about it, uh, he hasn't talked about like what other offers he had. But clearly there wasn't a whole lot um, for him to choose Colorado. But he he says he just wanted something totally different. And it's an odd choice in a lot of ways in that um, he became a father in March, and his daughter he's from Ohio. And that's where his daughter lives. And so for him to go from his daughter's in Ohio, he was, he was out in West Virginia and he comes all the way out to Colorado. Um, it's kind of an odd, odd thing for one year to come out and do that. But, um, you know, he loved it here in Colorado. He, he connected with the coaches and, uh, that tells me he probably didn't have a whole lot of power five options, which is surprising, but uh, he's been great for this defense. And, you know, Nate Lamb is the best linebacker I've covered at Colorado uh, Josh Chandler Samino might be the number two on that list. He's been really good. Uh, his tackle numbers are legit, and um, he's in on a lot of plays. And just the defense, the way they have it set up, is that they set things up for him to rush the passer a lot and get in the backfield. And he finds his way uh, back there a lot. He's had, I think it's five or six straight games, he's had at least one TFL. So um, he's been getting back there a lot. He's their most impactful player on defense. And the other one's probably Trevor Woods, uh, you know, their safety, young safety. But, uh, you know, Josh has been their best player on defense for sure. Last thing about the game specifically, Brian, uh, it's kind of a given by way of result here. So as we were talking with, uh, with Dan Lanning here on Monday about, you know, how you define success and he just made it simple win, um, which I can appreciate. I mean, I, you know, I, I think they probably have a few more things on the checklist, but I, I can appreciate yeah. that. Um, uh, how does Colorado define success in this one where they're nearly five touchdown underdogs? Um, it's understood. No one's trying to portray it as though these are two equally talented teams. They're not. We understand that. So what is it that they'll be looking for? What what will they have to do to have Mike Sanford go into the postgame in Boulder Saturday night and, uh, you know, come in, you know, at least upbeat, if not, you know, necessarily chipper necessarily, but uh, – upbeat as he was uh, a week ago after a loss to ASU. Well, before I said, I'll, with all due respect to Dan Lanning, who I don't know, I would not define success as winning if, if you win by yeah, one point okay, or yeah, it's yeah. a one-score game. <laughs> uh, I, you know, And you know that. But, I mean, yeah. in my opinion, you, you're closer to this Oregon team than I am, um, obviously. But in my opinion, 
you know, looking at the CFP, Oregon has still has to make up for that forty-nine to three loss to Georgia because it keeps getting brought up, uh, and I think they've got to make the best impression possible. And if Colorado has any shot in this game whatsoever, then that's that doesn't look good for Oregon. So I think I think that's a scary thing for Colorado is that Oregon could be looking to run things up because they have to look good uh, for for the committee. So for Colorado, I think success is that you cover, and they've only covered. Obviously, they won the one game when they were an underdog, and then they covered this last Saturday against Arizona State, and that's it. And so, to me, if you cover and uh, you lose this game by you know less than four touchdowns, I think that that's uh, they probably won't say a success, but I'll look at it and say, wow, that wasn't too bad. And you know, we'll see how it looks, but uh, you know, I, I think that that's probably how I define it. I mean, they they've just been so bad against teams that aren't anywhere near as good as Oregon, that uh, if they can cover the spread against Oregon, I would probably say, wow, that wasn't too bad. Who do you think um, are some of the candidates who could be Colorado's next head coach? What do you think uh, they should be looking for? What are some of the traits they should be looking for? What what should, you know, basically, where should Rick George be, be looking to uh, to take this thing and, and its coaching search, which – Obviously, it's been well underway, but, you know, a decision may not be had for six, seven weeks. Yeah, you know, well, first I'll say that he's made two coaching hires, and in both of them, there was nothing that came out before uh, the final result, you know, and I didn't have Mel Tucker on my radar at all until it came out, and he wasn't on really anybody's radar, and the same with Carl Durrell, obviously. Um, <laughs> you know, that one didn't work out, but that, you know, Nobody even thought of Carl Durrell. Uh, both of them, they. so my point is they kept both of those searches very, very quiet. Rick George is going to do the same thing in this one. So it's hard to know what they want. Uh, in my opinion, I think Colorado needs someone with head coaching experience and has been a winner as a head coach. And I think that this is too important of a hire for Rick George, number one, but more importantly for Colorado that, I mean, they've been obviously not good in almost two decades. You've got to get somebody – that can just finally get some stability and turn this around. I think it's too big of a job uh, to give to somebody that's never done it before. And one of the the hot names you know, around the Colorado program is Ryan Walters, the defensive coordinator from Illinois, who played safety at CU. Obviously, doing a fantastic job at Illinois, but he's never been a head coach, and so I would not look at him because of that. Now he might be a fantastic coach somewhere, but I wouldn't give him. I wouldn't want to be the team that uh, you know gives takes a chance on him if you're Colorado. Um, so I think they need an existing or not existing, but someone with experience, a head coach. Um, my my favorite guy is a guy like Bronco Mendenhall that just got out of it uh, last December to kind of take a break. Um, he wants back in. He lives out in the West. He's he actually is doing a podcast this uh, this fall that I've enjoyed listening to. That um, just listening to him, he fits the profile perfectly for me for what Colorado needs, and I think that he could come in here and and do a good job. Um, the interesting one, uh, as we're doing this, uh, you know, a, a new coach has emerged as all of a sudden on the market, Brian Harson. Uh, that obviously didn't go well at Auburn. We all know that. I don't think he was ever a fit there. Um, it was kind of one of the odder fits uh, that we've seen in recent years. Um, I think he'd be a much better fit at Colorado, and so that name intrigues me. You've also got guys like you know Tom Herman is sitting out there without a job that that is one, and so. I look at guys like that. If you want to go lower level, I think Troy Taylor is a, a really interesting name with what he's doing at Sac State. So um, I think the list is long, and I don't know where Rick George is looking at this point, but I look at it at guys that have been head coaches. 
it will be uh, certainly an interesting one for sure. Um, and I think beyond any one characteristic, I think whatever that uh, whoever the, is hired, um, what their background is by way of um, offense, defense, whether they were head coach before, um, will speak to some of it. But I think something like the you know where are they going to bring things in terms of recruiting? Because what is the vision? Um, what is the vision? What is the goal? Is this to become a much more wide open offense and play a different kind of style and try and make that work in Colorado and the Colorado climate, um, particularly in November when, you know, it's not necessarily that easy to play that style all the time. Um, is it to play and, and stick to the bread and butter and, and be running based and all that and embrace that, in which case, you know, how do you go about recruiting the linemen to make that work? Um, I think those sorts of things will speak to it. I think the, the geography of, you know, is it going to be continued to be, uh, based on recruiting in Texas, is it going to be based on recruiting in what's left of the Pac-10 footprint? Um, any number of questions certainly uh, will come up in, in Colorado's decision. It is one of the more, to me, it's one of the more fascinating openings because of those factors. I'm not right. saying it's the top opening in the league. I'm not saying it's the top opening in the country. I'm saying it's a fascinating opening because of all the myriad factors because I think everybody can agree that Colorado should be better than what it has been for several years now, not just under Carl Durrell, but it's all right, but what is the plan to get there and what is the vision to get there? And I'm not sure that, um, I, I honestly, I don't think Darrell really necessarily had a great one, um, right. that anybody <laughs> ever got to see. And Mel had one year and, and you never really got, I mean, there may have been an initial groundwork, but beyond that, you really didn't know. Um, so certainly fascinating from that standpoint, which brings me to the last question, Brian, being having said all that, whoever it is, what's the first, two or three agenda item things in order to overhaul this roster that you think they need to do. I mean, obviously it's bringing a whole bunch of talent and they're no longer capped off at 25 initial signees. So they can go crazy in the portal um, and have an incredible amount of roster churn, which I would imagine that they probably will. But what is, if you, if the new head coach gets hired tomorrow says, all right, Brian, come into my office, give me your thoughts. What are your two or three things that you say you got to do this or you, you know, you're in a world of hurt. Well, the number one thing to me is, you know, for all the faults that Carl Durrell had, the, the class that he brought in this last year is actually pretty good. And uh, you look at Jordan Tyson, and, you know, who knows what he'll look like against Oregon with all that talent. They might be able to shut him down. But um, just go watch the highlights from this last week. The kid is phenomenal. Um, you've got to keep him here. And it's not just him. And there's there's so many true freshmen playing, and some of it's need. I get it. But uh, Van Wells uh, is – a starting center as a true freshman. They love him. They think he's an NFL type talent. Um, Anthony Hankerson's a running back that, uh, you know, because of some injury, he's played, but he looks really good. Uh, there's a lot of good young talent that are in their first or second year at Colorado. And the number one thing this coach has to do is sit down with each one of those guys and beg them if he has to to stay in Boulder because we saw last year they lost 23 guys, but it's not the numbers that hurt. Most of those were okay attrition. It's the six starters that left that really hurt. Christian Gonzalez being one of them, and to me, uh, the most impactful loss that they had. Um, you've got to keep these guys here, and you're probably not going to keep them all, but uh, the, the number one thing this coach has to do is sit down with each of those guys that, and, and keep them here and do, do everything you can to keep them here. Number two, you've got to get in the portal and find a quarterback. And I don't know whether Owen McCown's going to stay, I don't know whether they believe in Owen McCown to be ready next year or not. We'll see what the, what the next head coach does. But 
they have not had a quarterback drafted since Coy Detmer in the late 90s and uh, have not had great quarterback play uh, really since then. Uh, you've got to get a quarterback if you're going to do anything. And so you've got to get in the portal. Quarterback would be one of my top things, uh, but you've got to you know be heavy in the transfer portal. And those two things I think are going to be huge for this program to get going. Um, I still think next year is going to be a struggle, but if you want to get to a bowl game by 2024, those two things are important. No question. It's it's going to be a, a massive roster overhaul. Um, it's going to be a big up, you know, a big undertaking for whoever the head coach is. But for so many of the positions that are open out there, whether we're talking about Colorado, or Arizona State, or whether we're talking about Auburn, or we're talking about you name it, all the jobs that have opened already and, and probably a few more to come, that everybody's relative position is different and arguably better than it was a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, because the rule changes. Because you can have a massive roster overhaul in a single offseason. You know, nobody could ever dream of the possibility of, of bringing in 40 or 50 guys in a single offseason. It was impossible. You can never do that. Now it's not only possible, it might be incredibly likely um, in, in certain places. And the scale of the rebuilds uh, that, that some programs are going to have to undertake, it, it may be a, a matter, matter of necessity um, in certain spots. So the scale of the rebuild is enormous, but at the same time, the scale of the flexibility is unprecedented. So it will be, again, that's why to me, I think it's a fascinating thing um, to follow here this offseason. Like we start to see the foundational aspects of that being laid at Arizona, for example. But when Jed got there a year ago, he couldn't bring in 40 guys in a single offseason. They darn near yeah. did, but, but yeah. they couldn't They couldn't quite get there. Um, they got real close. So um, it will be. Will definitely be fascinating. Well, again, here's Brian Howell, the – I will say, can I add one thing real quick? Yeah, yeah. I agree with you in the you know for the most part it's maybe better. I think it's scarier though uh, when you're at a place like Colorado that um, you know I've used a baseball analogy. CU is kind of like the Oakland A's. <laughs> you know, you look at think of Moneyball. Uh, you know, Oregon. You know, Ohio State, Alabama, whatever. They're the Yankees. CU is like Oregon State in that, or not Oregon State. Uh, <laughs> the Oakland A's. I wouldn't go that, that far. To, yeah, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Uh, my, I don't. You know what I mean, though. The Oakland <laughs> A's. So, <laughs> the Oakland A's were a farm team basically for you know the Yankees for a number of years, right? That's what Colorado's got to be fearful of right now. Is this portal opens that up to where? You've got a, a Jordan Tyson. You've got a Trevor Woods, uh, a Nico Reed, who's a, a pretty good cornerback, uh, young guys that are playing well for you, but are they going to stick around? And so that's a hard thing for this this next head coach is you've got good young talent at Colorado, but will it be here in January? The only thing is, though, is that the, 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 the G5 is in that position too. And that Correct. Yeah. Colorado still offers the opportunity to play on the Power 5 stage that somebody who's in not just the lower, I mean, not lower half, really the lower at least two-thirds of the group of five simply does not have anywhere near approaching that possibility. They just don't. Yeah. They just I mean, they just don't. Um, you know, so the opportunity to play on a bigger stage against better competition is still there. Um, I, I'm with you in that, you know, yeah, they have to worry that if a player gets too good, they're going to they're gonna leave and, and move up. Well, it works the other way, too. You know, yeah, they may lose guys on the way on the way up potentially, but they're going to be able to poach guys um, for guys who are playing better at, at the level beneath, which is the G five, which is you know the Mountain West, which is Conference USA, which is what's left of the American, um, and the reshuffling there, you know, and, and the Sun Belt, and you name it. 
um, they'll be able to to shuffle through there. And especially again with the number of openings out there, guess what? You know, they're going to hire a coach. All these places are going to hire coaches, and some of them are going to come from the group of five ranks. And those are going to be programs where, just like we saw Jacob Cowling leave UTEP, um, who's having you know has had a nice run the past couple of years, but. Those are the kinds of guys who find their way into a Power Five conference and end up leading the league and receiving the following year because, yeah, because they end up outperforming the position they're in and, and they can move up too. Um, and that's the, that's, I think, the position where Colorado can probably find some traction is, hey, yeah. you know, we can offer you the bigger stage and an opportunity to try and prove yourself. And they can take early on at a, co- a new coach's tenure a couple of swings on guys and, Play with house money a little bit and, and offer guys that opportunity on short term, on, on a one-year, two-year commitment kind of basis. Right, and, and that's one thing Colorado's got to get better at. And I will say one thing has been talked a lot about um, out here is that there are some issues with the transfer portal. Um, it's tough to get eligible at Colorado for those second- and third-year guys like a Jacob Cowing. Um you know, because there's this progress towards the grief for the NCAA. Yeah. Well, some of the issues are are um, some of the standards are tougher at Colorado. They just don't accept a lot of the credits that. Um, uh, I'm just using him as an example because we mentioned it, but Jacob Cowing, um, those those credits could get him into Arizona, but maybe not Colorado. And so there's an issue there. And so when you when we've seen Colorado's transfers in the last couple of years, it's guys that are grad transfers or first year transfers, and they're typically guys that. Um, have not played yet or not played very much. I mean, one of their best transfers was Tommy Brown from Alabama, and he's been a really good right guard for them, but he didn't play at Alabama at all. Josh Chandler Samito was an, was an, a rare one that he was the leading tackler at a Power Five team and came here. That's why you're asking about him because it's weird, right? <laughs> why did he go to Colorado? Um, most of their transfers are guys that uh, didn't play very much. And so that's what they've got to find those guys that you're talking about that uh, have been productive and been proven at the college level that they can you know put on a bigger stage and that's that's one of the biggest things that this next coach has to do is figure that out for sure and like I say that's it'll be a fascinating one to follow throughout the off season but uh, first comes Saturday afternoon and uh, we'll certainly check that one out in Boulder look forward to uh, I look forward to finally going to, to you know Folsom field myself I haven't been um, you know this is one of those games that you know was Supposed to happen, you know, a while ago. And then finally, uh, you know, they're making the trip. So, uh, it's been a minute. Uh, obviously a great setting for college football. So looking forward to going myself, looking forward to, uh, a game on Saturday that outside of the, you know, the competitive purposes of it. Um, yeah, it should be a good fun, uh, a good setting, a fun setting. Um, and, uh, again, for the long picture for Colorado's purposes, yes, um, something to pay attention to, obviously in the weeks ahead as well. Again, he's Brian Hal of the Boulder Daily Camera. You can follow him on Twitter as always at uh, Brian Hal 33 uh, Thanks again as always, Brian. You bet. Thanks.